This morning, we will conclude our series on how we change. If you've missed one of the last two weeks, I'd, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to them. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Jeremy preached on how we change in general as followers of Jesus and the five, characteri- five characteristics needed for us to change. And then last week, we looked specifically at the Sunday morning gathering and, and why we choose the liturgy the way we do, why we do the things we do each Sunday morning right here in this space. And so if you miss one of those weeks, I'd encourage you to go back. And so this morning, this is the final sermon in that three-week series, and we'll look specifically at, at gospel communities. We'll consider the same thing. How do we change as followers of Jesus, but within our gospel communities? And how these gospel communities that we participate in, how they form us over time. Now, at the beginning, I do want to acknowledge that I do believe it's possible for you to change as an individual on your own. I don't want to go so far as to say that you cannot be conformed into the image of Jesus if you are not in a gospel community. I just believe it's so much more difficult to do so. Think of it like moving. There is a chance that you could move all of your stuff in your house or your apartment or wherever you live all by yourself on your own. It might take you days or weeks even to pack all the boxes, to label them, to stack them, load and unload them. I considered this past week, if, if I thought that I could do this on my own, I probably spent way too much time thinking about if I could do this on my own. And, and I, I feel pretty confident that with the right tools, the right equipment, that I could do this on my own. Now, some of this is just stubbornness and bullheadedness, as, as my wife could probably attest to, that Maybe I I think more highly of myself than I ought, but I I really got to thinking that, you know, if I had the the right amount of dollies, straps to lift things, if I tore down all my furniture piece by piece, that that I do believe that I could move all of my furniture on my own. Now, it would come at a cost, right? It would take me significantly longer to do so. It would be more difficult to do so. I would be risking injury to myself trying to lift and maneuver heavy objects. I'm certain that I would injure myself if I had to move everything on my own. Having others around me would mean that they could also help me think through the best way to carry things and to stack them, maneuver them through doors. On my own, I wouldn't be able to see some of the things that others can see. And finally, yes, even As an introvert, I would be lonely. It's hard to imagine, but yes, introverts also need people too. There is something about doing things that aren't fun with other people that make doing those unfun things more enjoyable, isn't there? Now with a group of people that love you and care for you, that want to shoulder your burdens with you, when you think about moving, it's a few box of, boxes of pizza in a sunny afternoon, and, and you get the thing knocked out, right? In the same way, I do believe that you could change on your own. But as you know, it's much more difficult. It's slower. It's more painful. And it's lonely. Why would we do this? With a group of people that love us and care for us, they want to shoulder our burdens, Conforming into the image of Jesus is a community project. 
that we move towards together. Now, this is not by accident. We have been designed this way. God made us this way. And yet, we still don't always pursue meaningful relationships that lead us to change. Hoping to change in isolation is like moving on your own. Why do we do this? Paul Tripp writes in his book, How People Change. This is a quote from him. He says, meaningful relationships are often avoided. They require work, sacrifice, humility, and selflessness. While the idea of loving another person taps into something inherently human, it also exposes our self-centeredness. Now he quotes another offer, Todd Bolsinger, when he writes, more than any before us, an American today believes I must write the script of my own life. The thought that such a script must be subordinated to the grand narrative of the Bible is a foreign one. Still more alarming is the idea that this surrender of our personal story to God's story must be mediated by a community of fallen people. We frankly don't want getting in our way and meddling with our hopes and dreams. Can any of you relate? Now Paul Tripp goes on. At one level, we want friendships. And yet at another level, we don't want friendships. In creation, we were made to live in a community, but because of the fall, we tend to run from the very friendships that we need. Quite often, our longing for them is tainted by sin. We pursue them only as long as they satisfy our own desires and needs. We have a love-hate relationship with relationships. Now, I believe, and, and I would venture to guess that you believe that relationships are good for us and that in order to grow up into Christ, that we need one another. Our gospel communities can be, and I hope they are for each one of you, a means to change us more into the image of Jesus. Now we'll get into that, but I, I wanna begin by saying that I'm working from a few assumptions here. Just over a year ago, I, I believe Jeremy preached a sermon on formative community, which is one of our five core values here as a church. And in that, he unpacked what, what we mean when we say community and why we don't leave it like that, why community ought to be formative. It, it ought to be forming us in some way. And so going back to that sermon, I'd encourage you to check that sermon out as well. He laid some foundations for us there that I'm going to be working from this morning. And I, I'm just gonna briefly mention them here. Number one, God has designed us to be in community. We see from Genesis 1 that God, having perfect relationship within the Trinity, within himself, creates us in his likeness to also live in community with one another. Among other places, Ephesians 4 also highlights this and that we are to strive for unity with others as God himself is one. So, so number one, God has designed us to be in community. Number two, Jesus defines our community or redefines our community. In Mark 3, 31 through 35, Jesus reorients us to see that our family or our true community are those who follow him and seek to do the will of God. When you have eternity in mind, you have more in common 
with the ex-murderer who's currently sitting on death row that now loves Jesus and seeks to honor him with his life than you do with your earthly physical family that wants nothing to do with Jesus and solely wants to pursue the American dream. This, this is disorienting, isn't it? Like this, this is not what we would initially think. And yet, Jesus tells us that our family, our true community, are those that also follow him and do the will of God. Peter builds off of this in 1 Peter 2.10 when he says, Once you were, a, were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This was their new community, and this is the community that we live in today. So God designed us to be this way. Jesus defines our community. And number three, the Spirit empowers us to live as community. When Peter preaches at Pentecost in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the believers who are there. But he doesn't empower them to live separately. He empowers them to live as a community together that follows Jesus. They're described at the end of Acts 2 as devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Eating together, praying together, being filled with wonder, having everything in common, sacrificing for each other, and being full of thankfulness and praising God daily. This is remarkable. The Spirit empowers us to live as a community. So with this as our foundation, how do gospel communities at Providence Road lead us to change? How are they designed to see us mature together alongside one another, making us look more like Jesus? Now, two weeks ago, in Jeremy's first sermon on this series, he laid out those five characteristics that I mentioned that are required for change. And we're going to look at each one of those characteristics and specifically how they lead us to change within gospel communities. So number one, change is rooted in a heart that's been changed by the gospel in gospel communities. One author reminds us of the reality that within our groups, We are pastoring one another, and that continued belief in the gospel is something that will take us a lifetime to work out. He writes, We pastor one another over a lifetime. Change takes a lifetime. So we cannot expect instant change. We cannot expect a conversation with someone that, quote, sorts him out. It is important to remember this, otherwise we will become frustrated. You just need to believe the gospel might be technically correct, but we need to recognize that the struggle to just believe is a lifetime struggle. Don't be afraid, just believe, says Jesus to Jairus in Mark 5, 36. But the word just does not mean it's easy, especially when faced with the reality of death as Jairus was. The same is true for the man who fought through the crowd so that Jesus would heal his son in Mark 9. He approaches Jesus and he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? We are just like this man. Many of us in the room have been walking with Jesus for years and years, maybe decades And we're still often plagued with doubt and disbelief. 
We doubt his goodness towards us. We doubt his love towards us. We doubt that, that he can continue to have mercy on us. Now here's the truth this morning, friends. Jesus is the only way we are welcomed into the family of God. And it's Jesus that also keeps us in the family of God. There's no baton that's passed to uh, the church or to us as individuals or a smaller group of people that, now, okay, so Jesus has secured salvation, but now, now, now it goes to this person or this group of people or this church to, to keep you in the family of God. No, Jesus does the dirty work initially doing something that we could not do for ourselves and then he keeps us in the family of God, we're told in the scriptures. God draws us to himself by the spirit Jesus secures our salvation, taking on the wrath of God that was meant for us. And it's God alone that keeps us in the family of God after he's adopted us into the family of God. We did nothing. This, brothers and sisters, is what we must remind one another in our gospel communities. Sharing Verses with one another like Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or Romans 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Change can occur in us through our gospel communities when we are faithful to remind one another of the gospel, how we've been changed by Jesus and spur one another on in the everyday realities of life. So the mom or dad that's exhausted from raising kids, the laborer in the workforce straining to climb the corporate ladder, or any of us that feel like we don't measure up because we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. What we don't need to hear first is, hey, try harder. Why don't you just stop doing that thing? Why don't you be better? Just, just grit your teeth, clench your, just work harder. What we must first hear from one another is, his grace was sufficient for you, and it still is. His grace is still sufficient for you. If the gospel is not our motivation for change, then what we are changing into either will not last or it's not producing the type of fruit that God wants to produce in us. We must be proficient at communicating the gospel to one another. Number two, change requires self-awareness in gospel communities. As we saw a couple weeks ago, the first step in biblical repentance is to know yourself, is to know your sin. How can you put to death something in you 
that you don't yet know exists, that you aren't aware of. Now again, there are certainly things we can learn about ourselves in isolation, but there is a ceiling to what we can learn. For those of you who are newly married, or maybe you remember what it was like when you were newly married, why don't you tell me about that learning curve you experienced in that first year, huh? Now I hope it was mostly roses and butterflies, but I know it wasn't all roses and butterflies. Marriage, like our GCs, they're not a gift to us because they make us happier people, though I certainly hope that you are happy and satisfied within your marriages. They're a gift to us because they are a tool in God's hands to show us more of our sin, expose that in us, and lead us to deeper repentance and worship of God. How about when you had kids? And how about when those little sinners start talking back to you? Or, or when they slap you in the face? Or when they tell you that they hate you? Tell me, parents, what wells up inside of you when you are disgraced by your two-year-olds? Actually, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to tell me. I already know what wells up within you, and I know that it ain't good. Now, hear me clearly. I love marriage. I love parenting for the most part. But it's not easy. And yet... Easy isn't the point, is it? In your GCs, you're going to rub shoulders with people that are like you in the most important ways. Faith and belief in Jesus, hopefully a strong love for the local church and a sense of community. And they may be like you in no other way whatsoever. Now, I, I believe that's unlikely that you share nothing else in common but it may feel that way. It may feel like you, you agree on the most important things and nothing else. But I'm here to tell you that they are in your life, in your GC, if for nothing else than to help you have a greater awareness of your sin, your selfishness, and your need for a savior. When they disappoint you or frustrate you, don't look outward first. Look inward. What are they exposing in you that you haven't seen before? What are they bringing out of you that you've previously been unaware of? Look inward first, but yes, then look outward. Is it safe in your GC to speak into others and voice concerns that you have? Things like, hey man, I, I saw you have a conversation with that young woman the other day that's, that's not your wife, and it, it seemed like you guys were flirting a little bit and that you were looking a little longer maybe than, than you should. Is, is everything okay there? How are things at home with your wife? Or, or, or hey, mom, I, I saw you the other day snap at your kids and it seemed to really affect them in a negative way. How's parenting going? How, how, how are you doing? Are you okay? Or I've, I've noticed, maybe we don't want to talk about this one as much, I, I've noticed that you've been drinking a lot more than I've seen you do in the past. Are you extra stressed about something? How, how's work? How's, how's life at home? or a number of other things. Within our gospel communities, others see things in us that we are either unable to see or unwilling to admit. And though we may not want to admit it, those people are in our GCs for our good. Welcome others in to bring about a greater awareness of your sin. 
And then, once you see your sin, let's make war. Number three, change requires warring against your sin in gospel communities. James writes in chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, this is probably best done at the discipleship group level. So if you're new to GCs or, or you're not clear how they work, maybe you're not in one yet, within our gospel communities, we may have 15 to 20 adults some of our larger groups may have closer to 30, but that's when we, we look to form a new group out of that. Our discipleship groups are they're comprised of three to five people of the same gender. And as you meet over time, you, you learn about one another's sin struggles, how you're tempted in weakness, and how you can fight alongside of each other. This is where deeper accountability happens, where you can get to know each other. And maybe it's a, a text or a phone call of encouragement or, or consistently praying for one another, or regularly checking in and seeing how each other are doing. Ultimately, ultimately, it's linking arms with someone else and saying to each other, hey, you are not alone. I am here to fight with you. Now, now this takes time. This takes time to build trust. It takes time to be vulnerable with one another. It takes time to learn how to hold one another accountable. It takes sacrifice to figure out when to even do this. If you have kids, it's, it's waking up early and meeting for coffee before the kids get up, or, or it's meeting late after the kids go to bed. You have to sacrifice to make this happen. It takes effort to push through initial awkwardness you might feel, or misunderstandings of one another, or overcoming quick judgments that we've had about someone else. But the end result is added brothers or sisters that will fight alongside us so that each of us can grow into the image of Jesus. We believe this is absolutely time well spent. Whether we bring something before our brothers and sisters in a D group or a large group setting, wherever it may be, maybe they initiate a conversation with us that's super uncomfortable and awkward at first. Are we open to being called out and allowing others to walk with us especially in those seasons when sin seems to be having more victory over us than we're used to. You are not alone, so don't try to fight alone. Number four, change requires new practices in our gospel communities. For growth to occur, we must replace these sinful responses or habits or tendencies with new practices that honor God and overflow from a heart that's been changed by the gospel. Now it's true that you shouldn't try to change in order for God to love you. Maybe some of you are even here this morning and you think that, well, if I do a certain number of things, then God's going to love me. If I come to church a certain amount of times or if I read my Bible a certain amount of times or if I pray a certain number of times, if I do this or if I do that, well, well then God's going to love me. Or maybe you're functioning like you have a set of scales in your life and that I've done a lot of bad stuff, but if I do a lot of good stuff now and it outweighs my bad stuff, well, then I can come before God and he will approve of me. It will not work. And I think you know, I think you feel that it will not work. We must first come to God through the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. You've heard this before. You've heard it this morning already. We come to Jesus through the work that he's done. But then, yes, 
we must fight to put off the deeds of the flesh and put on the righteousness of Jesus that we see in Colossians 3. This is what we call here grace-driven effort. We don't put on righteous, the righteousness of God so that he will love us. We strive to look like Jesus because God already loves us through Jesus. Now we need others in our lives, those who know us well, to spur us on into these practices. Maybe it's establishing new spiritual disciplines, new routines, being faithful to attend and be present in both the Sunday gathering, but in your small groups as they meet throughout the week and in your discipleship groups. In the same way that we considered last week, we, we talked about the gathering, right? And how we intentionally leave the lights up in the room when we sing. And the music is somewhat loud, but it's not overbearing. And so we can hear people across the room singing these praise songs to God. We can see them across the room worshiping God. And it's an incredible encouragement to us when we see someone across the room and we think, you know, I, I, I know what that person's going through. I know they've had not just a hard week, but a hard month. I know things have been so difficult for them. And yet, here they are singing loudly and worshiping Jesus this morning. In the same way, it's true that as you meet in your uh, gospel communities and discipleship groups, and you, you know the person across the table is regularly studying the word of God. They pray often. They're actively sharing their faith. They're, they're asking the Holy Spirit to produce fruit in them. It serves as such an encouragement to us, doesn't it? May that spur us on. Remember what Paul wrote to Philemon. This is one of my favorite verses in the scripture. Starting in verse four, he says, Paul writes to his brother, I think my God, always, when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you." This is, this is my hope within our gospel communities and within our discipleship groups, that as we are all individually working out our faith, as we're all pursuing Jesus as individuals, that when we come together and we talk about these things, that other brothers and sisters within that circle you're sitting in, their hearts are refreshed through you. Their hearts are refreshed through me. That my heart is refreshed through you because I'm, I'm just watching you love God and serve him and live out your faith. The author of Hebrews gets at this as well in chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Are the hearts of the saints refreshed through you and through me? Are we regularly meeting together and considering how do we stir up one another to love and good deeds? Let us consider these things. 
And finally, number five, change requires the work of the Spirit in our gospel communities. As you gather together in homes, week in and week out, what are you asking the Holy Spirit to do? What are you hoping that the Spirit of God does? In you, in your groups, in, in your neighborhoods, or in our city? Is the Holy Spirit a functional extra member of your group as you gather together? As if he's just, you know, an extra seat in the room? Or is he the driving force behind your gatherings and the reason that people are experiencing change among you? Together, are you witnessing and experiencing an ever-increasing harvest of the fruit of the Spirit within your GC? Things that we see in Galatians 5, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentle, all, all of these things, are, are they being produced in you? Are you seeing the Spirit's fruit in your gospel community? Changing into the image of Jesus will not happen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Now with these five characteristics present in our gospel communities, they can be a tool that God uses to sanctify us and grow us more into the image of Jesus. But it's not necessarily easy. We've kind of hinted at this. It's, it can be challenging, and I want to press into that just for a moment. So I coached my son's third grade basketball team, and a few weeks ago we had a, a really really rough game that we experienced. We were getting all of the shots and rebounds that we wanted, but we could not make a shot. A team that we later ended up beating by 20 points with all of the same players present, we lost that day to them four to eight. Four points, we had four points. That's two baskets, two baskets, the whole game. And wow, the boys, they did not take it well. They took their frustrations out on one another. They took their frustrations out on me. They took their frustrations out on the ref. At one point or another, half of our team was sobbing. They were crying. Some were lying on the floor after the game in dejection. You would have thought that a bomb went off in the room that only affected our team. I mean, it was, it was a sight to see. They were bringing things out of each other that weren't good, right, and true. It was something. Now, one thing I noticed, there was one boy who was fine throughout the whole game. In fact, when we discussed the game later, I had to, I had to gather them together. We had to regroup. We had to talk through. Hey, all right, fellas, what happened here? Like this, this, is not, this is not like us. And we did that. This young, this young boy said, Coach, I, I didn't experience this stuff. That, that, that I actually had a great time. Like I had so much fun at the game. I don't know what these guys are talking about, you know? And, and so you, you could chalk that up to, to this just being the most carefree kid in the world, right? You could do that. But as, as I thought more, I started to realize, you know, this is the only boy on our team that didn't have a previous relationship with at least one other boy before the season started. So before the season, me and a group of dads got together or our sons started talking like, hey, you want to play in this team? And we kind of formed it that way. We, we got together seven boys that at least knew one other person on the team, and, and several of them knew most of each other on the team. And this, this young boy, he, 
just filled out the form and said, hey, I want to play. And he was kind of a straggler that didn't know anyone. And so my assistant coach and I reached out to him and said, hey, you can join our team. So he was the only one that didn't know someone else. And he also was the only one that didn't experience the relational tension that all the other boys felt and experienced during that four to eight loss. Now you might look at this and say, well, well, maybe that's better. You see, he didn't get mad and he didn't get upset. So maybe it's better to be like that boy who is somewhat of an outsider. Maybe. Or maybe it would be better for us to change our opinion of conflict and what is for our ultimate good. It is way easier. The road is wide and many are on it that prefer to avoid conflict at all costs, to live comfortably, and to avoid close relationships for fear of the hurt they may bring. It is certainly more comfortable. But make no mistake, friends, it is not better. Living in close community with others is messy and painful to deal with at times because people are messy and painful to deal with at times. You are messy and painful to deal with at times. So am I. That does not mean that we should avoid it. The boys on our basketball team thought that there was one goal this season, winning and winning big. And so when they didn't win big, they got upset. Now, the, it is a goal that we have to win every game we want to play. We want to we work hard and we want to fight to win these games. But it is not the primary goal. We want to use the game of basketball to shape these young boys and grow them up into young men. And hopefully someday, young men that honor and love Jesus with their lives. The goal of our gospel communities is not conformity into the image of each other. The goal of gospel communities is conformity into the image of Christ and helping one another to grow towards that end. Now, maybe I should have said this at the beginning, but I'm at least gonna say it now that Brooke and I lead a gospel community here and I wanna be clear that RGC isn't perfect. We're sinners leading other sinners. We have unmet expectations of our group. There are things that we wish would happen that aren't happening. I'm certain that our group has unmet expectations of us. They might like us to lead in a certain way that we're not. But ultimately, my wife and I are functioning as beggars showing other beggars where the bread of life is. That's it. That is how we are functioning. What we've considered today is simply the ideal picture of what we hope our gospel communities here at Providence Road look like. It's what we're striving for. Now there are a few things that I'd love for you to consider this morning as you reflect on these things that you've heard. For the first and the most obvious is probably, are you in a gospel community? Why, why are you not in one if you're not in one? I mean, let us know. Like, if you want to be a part of, of a smaller community of believers that can help you grow into the image of Jesus, let us know. Please be patient with us. If you all try to get in one at the same time, it'll be challenging to find a place for you, but we will do our best. Please, let us know. Number two, college students. It is so good that you are in small groups or D groups within your campus ministries. I do believe, though, that it's better for you to be in groups with people from all ages. And that's not true for just college students, that's true for all of us. 
don't just surround yourself with people just like you. You can grow when you surround yourself with people that are very similar to you, but we need people from all different walks of life, from all different backgrounds, different genders, different ideas, all ages, those that sin differently than you, all that sit under the lordship of Jesus. We need each other. For others of you in here, can you take on a greater leadership role within your GC or within the church at large so that others can be invited in and share in experiencing this gift that God has given to us? You know, at some point along the way, someone sacrificed so that you could come into your gospel community and you could experience what you're experiencing now. Is it time, perhaps, for you to consider sacrificing so that someone else can come in and be a part of experiencing the same thing that you are experiencing? Let's talk about expectations. Are you expecting too much too soon from your GC to help you change? Maybe you feel like they aren't giving me what I need. Or maybe the flip, flip side is true. Are you expecting too much too soon for your GC to change? Oh, they'll, they'll never change. They'll never get to where I want them to get. For both sides of the coin, I just want to say, would you be patient? As we considered last week, we're not asking you to look back over the past three, four, five weeks, or even a couple months to see and how have you been changed by the Sunday gathering. Same is true in our GCs. We we wouldn't ask that you would look back that far. We would ask that you would look back several months, six months, eight months. How about years? If you've been in a gospel community for five years or more, why don't you look back? How has God changed you over that time as a direct result of your gospel communities? How has he changed others in your group as a result of faithful attendance and commitment to participate in your gospel communities? Are you fully invested in your GC are you, or are you holding back? Do you participate only when it's convenient? Do you want to change? Is there something right now that you know you need to share with someone else in your GC or, or with, with a pastor that you know you need to, ch- to change, but you're hiding something that you don't want exposed? You're covering your sin. Would you expose that today? Don't leave without that being exposed today. Now, as we finish, I want to share one final story, and this is again from Paul Tripp's book on how people change, and it's from a woman who shares her experience in her church's small group. She shares it like this. My husband and I have been a part of the same small group for the past five years. Like many small groups, we regularly share a meal together, we love one another practically, and serve together to meet needs outside of our small group. We worship, we study God's word, and we pray. It has been a rich time to grow in our understanding of God, what Jesus has accomplished for us, God's purposes for us as a part of his kingdom, his power and desire to change us, and many other precious truths. We have grown in our love for God and others, and we've been challenged to repent of our sin and trust God in every area of our lives. It was a new and refreshing experience for us, she writes, to be in a group where people were willing to share their struggles with temptation and sin and ask for prayer. We've been welcomed by others, challenged to become more vulnerable. We've been held up in prayer, encouraged in specific ongoing struggles, and have developed sweet friendships. 
I've seen one woman who had one foot in the world and one foot in the church openly share her struggles with us. We prayed that God would show her the way of escape from temptation many times, and we've seen God's work in delivering her. Her openness has given us a front row seat to see the power of God intersect with her weakness. Her continued vulnerability and growth in godliness encourage us to be humble with one another and to believe that God is able to change us too. Because years have now passed in close community, God's work can be seen more clearly than on a week-by-week basis. One man who had some deep struggles and a lot of anger has grown through repenting of sin and being vulnerable one-on-one and in the group. He's been willing to hear the encouragement and challenge of others and to stay in community throughout his struggle. He's become an example in serving others, a better listener, and he's become more gentle with his wife. As a group, we've confronted anxiety, interpersonal strife, the need to forgive, lust, family troubles, unbelief, the fear of man, hypocrisy, unemployment, sickness, lack of love, idolatry, and marital strife. We've been helped, held accountable, and lifted up by one another. We've also grieved together, celebrated together, laughed together, offended one another, reconciled with one another, put up with one another, and sought to love God and one another. As a group, we were saddened in the spring when a man who had recently joined us felt that we let him down by not being sensitive to his loneliness. He chose to leave. I say this because with all the benefits of being in our small group, it is still a group of sinners. It is Jesus who makes it worth getting together. Apart from our relationship with him, we have nothing to offer. But because our focus is on Jesus, the group has the potential to make a significant and life-changing difference in all our lives. I eagerly look forward to the sound of my brothers and sisters coming in our front door each week. I never know how the evening will go, what burdens people will be carrying, how I will be challenged, or what laughter or tears we will share. But I always know that the great shepherd will meet us and that our lives will be fuller and richer because we have been together. What a powerful story. Friends, I would say that this has been almost verbatim my experience in the gospel community that Brooke and I are a part of. There are high highs and there are low lows. There are big moments of celebration and there are heart-piercing, agonizing moments of shared pain. And there are also plenty of mundane, seemingly unimpactful moments. But through it all, we always know that the great shepherd will meet us and that our lives will be richer and fuller because we have been together. Our hope is that this has been and will continue to be your experience as well as we seek to build one another up in the body of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for making us the way that you have. We celebrate 
that you have made us in such a way to both desire and need one another. I pray that you would draw us into this deeper community that we've looked at this morning. Would you make us to desire it greater? I pray that we would be for one another what you have designed us to be, that we would seek to hold one another accountable, we would encourage one another, we would spur one another on to love and good deeds. Would you make it true of us? I pray that we would make room for others to be welcomed into these gospel communities. Make us to sacrifice more so that others could come and experience what we've experienced in the way that you've designed it to be. I pray that for any in the room that are feeling the weight of sin and shame this morning, that you would overwhelm them with the love of God for them in Christ Jesus to make them see and experience the realities and the truth of the gospel this morning. God, we love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.